is the start of Advent, as Nate mentioned. And Advent is a season for the church to anticipate over the next four Sundays the celebration of the arrival of Jesus on earth. And so you might be asking, well, what's the value of Advent? I mean, what's the value of reflecting about Christmas before Christmas? Well, as you might experience now, December in our current modern way of life is usually a time of the year that is so crowded with shopping sales, work events, catch-ups, deadlines, and sometimes the significance of Christmas can actually get crowded out of our minds and our hearts. It can actually sometimes feel like we kind of limp over or even collapse into Christmas Day. And so the value of the season of Advent is to really fix our eyes on Jesus and stoke our hearts to cherish Jesus so that those pair of shoes on sale that you missed out on, or that deadline that you missed, or that work bonus that you didn't get, or that 2020 personal goals that you didn't achieve, doesn't actually take away your hope and joy in life. Because you still have Jesus, who is God with us. And that is what Christmas reminds us about, that the most wonderful gift and privilege that we can have on earth is that we have Jesus, God with us. And so for Advent this year, we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus by seeing him in four prophecies in the book of Isaiah that identifies Jesus as God's servant. These four special prophecies are commonly referred to as the servant songs. And I believe that through the servant songs, God will summon us to behold Jesus. And I'll explain in a sec what it means for God to summon us to behold Jesus. But let me start by giving you just a quick introduction to the servant songs. The book of Isaiah at the beginning states, this is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and that's the southern kingdom of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, that Isaiah, son of Amos, during the reign of Uzziah, Jonathan, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so by mentioning that reigns of those kings, it's roughly between 739 BC and 686 BC. And the prophecy of Isaiah can be divided into two main parts. The first part is chapters 1 to 39, and the central theme there is judgment on Judah, which led Judah into captivity by the Babylon Empire. Part 2 is from 40 to 66, which looks at the promise of God's salvation and restoration of God's people from their captivity. And the reason why God's judgment fell on Judah, as well as all the other nations, was because of universal idolatry. All the nations, even Israel, were guilty of idolatry. The northern kingdom of Israel was carried into captivity by the Assyrian Empire for worshipping golden calves. Then the southern kingdom of Judah was also led into captivity by the Babylonian Empire for the same reason. But despite Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness, God promises to restore his people. 
But what is remarkable and striking in Isaiah's prophecy of restoration is this collection of these servant songs. It's striking because Israel, who expected restoration through the reestablishment of their king, they would have expected conquer over the opposing nations through perhaps military power to secure their national freedom. But these songs feature a fascinating, shadowy person simply entitled as my servant, who God uses and brings about the restoration of his people. And the servant's restoration finds its fulfillment in Jesus, because the New Testament writers look back to the book of Isaiah and unflinchingly identify Jesus as the servant king who fulfills all the promises of Isaiah. And so God's remedy for humanity's problem of idolatry is his servant. God's solution to us being captive and enslaved to idols is to look to Jesus. And so today we're going to look at the first song, to see Jesus as the spirit-filled servant. And looking to Jesus is what the first song calls us to do. Isaiah 32, if you read in the first verse, it says, Here is my servant whom I hold, my chosen in whom I delight. And here is my servant is unfortunately a very weak translation. Other translations like the ESV better translate the strong imperative at the start, which is behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Behold is an imperative. It's a command. See, we're being summoned here. It's not like, hey, here is my stapler, if you need it. Nor is it like, ta-da, here is Jesus out of the hat, like a magic trick. What is happening here is that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, is calling us and summoning us to behold Jesus. Brian Russell, in his commentary on the servant song, says this really well. What we have here is a core for the strongest exercise of our cognitive powers to contemplate and give our fullest attention to the highest of all objects. We are to be engaged in a thorough consideration of Jesus Christ, the servant, because all our spiritual well-being depends on our belonging of his glory. In other words, to give Jesus our fullest attention with the strongest exercise of our cognitive power is because, firstly, Jesus' glory is worthy of our full attention. Jesus is so glorious that we can't but help give him our full attention. But secondly, we are to behold Jesus because our spiritual well-being depends on it. Because what we behold is what we become. What we behold is what we become. The reason why God calls and commands us so strongly to behold Jesus is because what we behold is what we become. God created us as humans, as image bearers of God to reflect God. And so if we're not reflecting God, then we're reflecting something else. And what we behold is what we become. So the more we see Jesus intently, the more we'll become like him. 
Consider what 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 to 18 says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Do you see what beholding Jesus actually means? When God calls us to worship Jesus, it's actually not an invitation that you can choose to RSVP or not. God's call to worship is a summoning. It's a delightful summoning because the verse says, that is what God does with love and delight. And so God's call to worship Jesus is an irresistible call and compulsion to delight in Jesus. It's not like you can turn away. Because if you're summoned to a court of law, well, it's not like an invitation, is it? It's not like you actually have a choice. And so when Yahweh, the Lord God, summons us to behold and worship Jesus, it's not like an invitation. It's not like you have a choice. Not because God will slap you with a penalty, it's because Jesus is irresistibly so worthy of our worship because our spiritual well-being depends on our worship of him. And so let me encourage you to see that when God calls us to worship this Wednesday night at our prayer and praise night, see that it's not something that we attend and participate because it's in our church calendar. Nor is it an obligation or duty because Pastor Mikey says we should go. But see that God calls us to worship. He is actually summoning us to delight in Jesus for our spiritual well-being. God is summoning us to behold Jesus so that we can become like Jesus. And it's the same every Sunday. That's why at the start of every Sunday service, it's a call to worship. So church on a Sunday is not an invitation that you can accept or ignore and be non-committal like Facebook. It's not about attendance, nor is it about obligation. It's about the irresistible summoning of God to behold his servant son. And I see this all the time at Chapel Hill. There are so many people who have come to call Chapel Hill home because their story has been like this. It's been people who've been out of church for many years, then out of nowhere, they say, look, I have a prompting to go back to church. I have this compulsion all of a sudden to renew my Christian faith. I have this strong feeling and compulsion to actually come and see and meet Jesus again. I see this all the time, every year. Because when God says, behold my servant, it's not a magic trick. It's not ta-da. It's not an invitation. It's a summoning. It's an irresistible summoning for your soul to delight in beholding Jesus. And so as we behold and fix our eyes on Jesus onto the servant, we see that the servant will bring forth justice on earth here in Isaiah 42. Verse 1, I will put my spirit onto him 
and he will bring justice to the nations. Verse 3 to 4, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And the word justice in the Bible actually means more than just righting wrongs. It means more than just punishing wrongdoing. Justice in the Bible has this broader, far-reaching meaning of reordering the entire universe. Justice is about restoring the world to its right created order. And that kind of justice that God's servant is, he's just not another judge. God's servant will bring about restorative justice that restores the entire creation to its good and intended order. And the reason why he will not falter, he will not be discouraged, whereas all of other Israel's rulers had failed, is because he's filled with God's Spirit. The servant will succeed while all others have failed is because he is empowered by God himself. But we see that the Spirit-filled servant will deliver justice in a very strange and peculiar way. As we read those verses, you might have found verses 2 and 3 very odd. It says, He will not shout or cry or raise his voice in the streets. And even more strange, verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. These are actually remarkable verses because they stand out in such a stark contrast to the loudy, shouty, very frequent Twitter, social media chatter, noise, propaganda to gain attention and to win followers, isn't it? God's servant is quiet. He will not shout or cry or even raise his voice in the street. In today's current situation, that is incredible. And it's not saying that Jesus didn't speak in public. He did preach in the open very powerfully. What it's saying figuratively is that the servant will not shout or carry on to draw attention to himself. He won't promote himself. Instead, he will be solely focused on the work of his father that has called him and sent him And he will do it in a very quiet, unpretentious way. And more importantly, the servant is gentle. The gentleness of the servant is illustrated by two metaphors. A bruised reed he will not break. Here's a photo of what a reed looks like. What can be weaker than a bruised reed? I mean, if anything just brushes up against a reed, it will just break. The other metaphor is a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Again, there's nothing more fragile than the existence of a dimly burning wick. In a few moments, it will die out. These are weak and needy things. Yet God says that his servant will never break the bruised reed, nor quench that smoking wick. The servant is strong in a gentle and tender nature. 
not harsh, not intimidating. What we see is that Jesus shunned publicity. Jesus told people to not tell others if they've been healed by him. Jesus did not want to be known as a wonder worker or an aspiring king. Jesus was focused on solely being a lowly saviour who had come to suffer and die. Jesus was as gentle as he was quiet. He was gentle and tender to the Samaritan woman who others avoided. How gracious was Jesus when he refused to condemn the woman caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus was the one who said, Come to me, all of you who labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Wow. Isn't that amazing? When we behold Jesus, this is what we see about him. And if it's true that what we behold is what we become, then we can't help but examine ourselves. Are we prone to promote ourselves? Do we make a lot of noise, make a lot of fuss, but deep down it's really a desperate way to get attention? Do we hanker after publicity? Is it the spotlight that you're after? But when we behold Jesus, we see he works quietly. Or do we tend to be harsh in our impatience with the weaknesses of others? Man, I know this week I have not been a patient father. Are we quick to write people off? Quick to snuff out the flickering wicks around us? When the Apostle Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, he said, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. When Paul said that, he must have been thinking and seeing Jesus, the spirit-filled servant. We are to be humble and gentle like Jesus. That's why we need to behold Jesus, to gaze intently on Jesus, to meditate and marvel at who he is, because left to ourselves, we are not quiet or gentle people, are we? But when we behold Jesus, quiet and gentle, restorative of nature, how can we not want to be like him? How can we not be so impressed by him? How can we not be drawn to him? How can we not find him so attractive? How can we not be in absolute awe of him? His quiet and gentle righteousness is so otherworldly. It's so incredible. It's so glorious. And I can keep going because I feel like there are so much words that I could say. There is infinitely more words that I could use to describe the glory of Jesus' character and nature, and it still won't grasp my utter awe of Jesus. Because when we see Jesus like that, we can't help but think about him, talk about him, and sing about him for days on end. That's why at the end, Isaiah says this verse in verse 10. Maybe Ez could bring that up. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth 
You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands, all who live in them. Esmond told me this week that this is the go-to verse for music leaders, worship leaders, and musicians in the church. They love this verse because it shows in the Bible, very explicitly, permission to sing new songs to God. And my encouragement to music leaders, worship leaders, and everyone who love to sing praise to God is that this verse, in the context of beholding Jesus, is not a verse that permits you to sing new songs. It's a verse that shows you that you can't but help to sing new songs. Because to sing a new song to the Lord is not the command. The command is to behold my servant. And the natural consequence, the natural response, the natural overflow is to sing new songs. And so if you're new to Chapel Hill and you ask, man, why do you guys always sing new songs? Our response is not because the Bible permits us to do so. Our response is that we can't but help it because we are a church that beholds Jesus. Have you seen Jesus in Isaiah 42? The man is amazing. Let me show you him. We can't but help to sing new songs because there are infinitely more words we could use to describe the glory of Jesus' character and nature, and it won't fully grasp our utter awe of Jesus. And so we will forever sing new songs. We will forever write new songs about Jesus' ever-streaming, never-ceasing glory and grace. I mean, I, I'm, I'm moved to worship. I'm going to go a bit off script a bit, and I hope the internet's not going to crucify me, but I just want to say, Gladys, our premier, we love what you've done to our state. We think you've done a great job. We pray for you and your government, and we pray that we will continue to get on top of this pandemic. But Gladys, I want you to see that we hope for the day that we can sing again safely, responsibly, and lovingly to our community. Because I want to say that singing is our essential service to God. But whilst we wait for that day, we will honour our leaders. We will love our local community And we will sing safely in our homes till that day comes in the new year. Church, stand. And I want you to behold Jesus with these words. Please stand. Close your eyes and lift yourselves up in these words. We Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. 
beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Alleluia, hallelujah, Jesus Christ, our living hope. Amen.